0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to this life-changing message from the ministry of Faith Bible Chapel. We hope this message will encourage you in all parts of your life. At the end of this message, you will hear more information on how to contact our church family, as well as directions for you to visit us for any of our worship services. Until then, join us for the service in progress. Gospel of Luke in chapter 7. I'm only going to take a short time to share this parable with you but it has some great truths in it. The parable of the two debtors. I'll talk about the parable of the two debtors. Now, the parables began in Jesus' ministry about the second year into his… after the second year into his ministry, as best as we can tell. So you know he had about three and a half years of public ministry. He ended up in Jerusalem where he would suffer and die and eventually rise from the dead. But… Um, he started the parables after two years, speaking to them in parables. And this is kind of read right at the beginning of him speaking, and he's still in the area of the Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel. And you remember there, there were lots of people that would gather to hear Jesus teach. The Sermon on the Mount took place in the Galilee. That's where there were thousands of people where Jesus said, I stood. Probably very close to the place where Jesus would have spoke from. and it's amazing that you can speak without any uh, the speakers and all this stuff that we have up here. and you, you can hear so clearly uh, if people were sitting down on the mountainside that and the Sea of Galilee behind you. But this is not near the Sea of Galilee necessarily, or, but it, it's close there now, it's the story of the two debtors. We're going to talk about that. In this particular story, we're going to read now verses 36 to 50. You'll find that there are a couple characters that we're going to point out. Verse 36, let's begin there. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man If he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? are forgiven, for she loved much. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. There are really three characters, Jesus, the Pharisee, and the woman in this story, and then the parable or the story itself. Now this is not to be confused with another incident that is very similar of a woman who had an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. That particular incident is talking about one that happened in Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. That's later on, right before his persecution would take place. That was at Mary's house, and Mary was the one that anointed His feet. It's just a coincidence that Simon, the leper, was at that particular house, and this is Simon the Pharisee. But Simon was a common name, like John or Joe or George, well, not so common George, but <laughs> but it was a common name. So don't confuse it with that incident. This is a different incident altogether. This is near the Galilee. This is two years into his ministry. Now, this Pharisee had been watching Jesus do his ministry as he made his way around the villages in the Galilee. After he's finished ministering one particular time, he invites Jesus to his home. Now, was it a holiday? We don't know. Was it a special occasion? We don't know. But when you have a meal in the Middle East, you have a meal, (laughs) There are a lot of people that come. There's a lot of fellowship. This took place after the particular meetings that he was having, just like maybe a meal that we're going to have right after the service here. The community was involved in. In smaller villages, a lot of people would be involved. Now you have to understand this, and I asked a question when I was reading this: Why did Simon invite Jesus? Why did this Pharisee invite Jesus to come? Well, there. Are We can speculate on a lot of reasons, but I believe the reason being this. I think Jesus was popular, and I think that the Pharisees at this particular time liked to do things that would bring attention to themselves. So he invites them to his home, this popular prophet, if you will, this popular teacher named Jesus. But I really believe that this Pharisee, like all the Pharisees, had an agenda they had an agenda for a long period of time. They have been consistently trying to trap Jesus in His words. And you remember several stories that we read. They would ask Him questions, difficult questions to see if He would answer them correctly. They were trying to build a case against Him in reality. They were trying to get Him to say something that could accuse Him because they did not like Jesus. They hated Him. They wanted to get rid of Him. I don't think he was a friend of Jesus. I think he had an agenda, was trying to trap him, trying to accuse him of some crime. Now, Jesus would consistently attack the Pharisees more than any other people. He would call them hypocrites, snakes. Uh, I mean, they were self righteous people. Uh, Just the verses before this story, if you were to go back, they accused Jesus of being a glutton a wine-bibber and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, I'm going to make some statements now, and I'm going to explain them. When you look at the two characters, the woman and this particular Pharisee, I think we have to see that the Pharisee was the worst of both of them in sin. Pharisee, the worst of all sinners of the two. This woman was a street woman, probably a prostitute. But the most unredeemable of all is the one who thinks he is not a sinner and doesn't need redemption, who thinks that God is pleased with him the way he is. That's the most unredeemable of the two of them, and is the case today. Do you remember Paul called himself the chief of all sinners? Even after his redemption, he knew the life that he lived. He knew the self-righteous life that he lived. He knew the hypocritical life that he lived, so he calls himself the chief of all sinners. So the worst kind of sin is the sin of self-righteousness, the assumption that on your own you can earn a place in the kingdom of God. And I think the most heinous crime of all treats the sacrifice, and I believe the reason it is, because... A person in this position treats the sacrifice of Christ with utter utter disdain and being unnecessary and foolish. That's what righteous people, self-righteous people will do. We don't need the cross. That's foolish. And the New Testament tells us that it's foolishness to a lot of people. So Jesus is using, get this, Jesus is using a wretched sinner, the woman, to reach an even worse sinner. So he's evangelizing in this too. And we don't have time to get into that part of the truth of this parable. Jesus is willing to go to the Pharisee's house. He knows that they have an agenda. He knows that they're going to try to pin him down, make a case again. But he's willing to go. He knows that this Pharisee is probably a hypocrite and has evil intention. But do you remember, Jesus came to save and seek those who are lost. That's what He's all about. That's a lesson right there for us. I was talking to Cheryl this morning. There are so many people in our neighborhood that, you know, we need to become more aware of who they are and how far they are from God and start inviting them because that's what we're all about. And we have to keep that in front. Now, so Jesus comes into the room. He reclines at the table. They used to recline at the table, kind of laying on their side, propped up on their elbow where they would eat around a triclinium or a three-sided table. There are people in the room. It was a custom that all people would come in. The, the, The guest and all would sit at the table, but there were others that would come in, family members, but community members too. And that's the picture that we're kind of getting. The woman comes in probably in the beginning, there are people looking and they know this woman because she's from that city. Now, if you're a street woman, a prostitute from that city, and it's a small village, you would know, everybody would know you, right? She had a reputation, no doubt. But they weren't saying much. She probably made her way in. And we're told that she comes and she stands at the feet of Jesus. So, as Jesus is reclining, it's very possible that He's reclining and maybe not seeing her at first. With His feet stretched out, maybe she's against the wall. Maybe there's no wall there. It doesn't matter. But she's at His feet. Everybody knows her. She has a alabaster jar of perfume in her hand, probably because she wants to anoint Jesus. She wants to anoint Jesus. Now here's where we pick up. I don't believe this is her first encounter with Jesus at all. I believe that she had an encounter with Jesus before because she was so touched by that previous encounter that she came to do something special for Jesus. She wasn't touched there, she was touched before, and now she was responding to that touch. She is flooded with the reality of the kind of woman she is. She's overwhelmed with the emotion we get from the story. She's sobbing. She is flooded with the reality of where she had been and what this man had done for her. Her tears begin to flow from her eyes. Now, you got to see this. As her tears are flowing, they're beginning to drop on Jesus' feet. But it's not one drop or two drops. Before long, there's enough there that actually saturate or cover the feet of Jesus. She looks as her tears are dropping on His feet, and she notices that His feet were not cleaned they're still dirty from coming in from outside. The host of the house should have washed Jesus' feet. That was the custom. He was invited as a guest in the Pharisee's house, Simon's house. He should have had someone or himself wash his feet. But no, it didn't happen. So his feet are dirty. She notices this. She doesn't have any water, but her tears… There's a a word used here for her tears that's interesting when you look it up. It's a Greek word that means rain. They were raining down on his feet. Her emotions are gaining momentum. And as they rain down, she begins to wash his feet with the tears. Can you imagine how many tears it was? She has no towel. So she takes her hair, which probably was up because it was, not, it was not for a woman to have her hair down. She, she had it up in public especially. So she takes her hair down, which was not accepted by the self-righteous. And because she has no towel, she begins to wipe off the tears and the dirt from his with her hair. After the feet are clean, we're told that she begins to kiss his feet. It's the same word used here as when the prodigal son returned to the father and he ran to the son and he hugged him and kissed him. So it has more than just kiss. The the word has a meaning of hugging and kissing. So she had a hold of his feet. She was hugging and kissing his feet. After she's kissing his feet, she takes the perfume, which he had all intentions, probably to anoint his head. But it, the opportune came up that his feet needed cleaning. I want you to get that. It wasn't just that she had this, this uh, uh, idea that she was going to anoint his head, but, but that when she saw the need, she just went in and met that need. So as she's hugging, now she breaks that jar and she pours this expensive perfume on his feet. The Pharisee, the Simon, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Simon's disgusted with the whole scene. He's obviously disgusted. Jesus knew what Simon is thinking. Isn't it interesting? Simon says, if he were a prophet, he would know. But yet, he said to himself, and yet Jesus knew what he said to himself. He proved himself to be a prophet. He knew what he was thinking. And he said to Simon, I have something to say to you. And then he goes into the parable, and he tells of two people who owed, one who owed 500 denarii, which is 500 days of wages, a year and a half days of wages. The other owed 50, which is just over a month's day of wages. And he uses this parable or illustration to paint a picture in the mind of the people. Which of these, he said, will love more? Which of these will be more appreciative or grateful. Simon answers correctly. He said, I suppose the one who's been forgiven the most. In verse 44, he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, so he turns and looks at the woman, but his words are directed to Simon. Do you see this woman? He said, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Jesus says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. To whom little is forgiven, the same love little." Simon, do you see this woman? I'm seeing great love come out of that woman. That's what Jesus was saying. He's saying, see, I'm seeing an expression of love here that I don't see very often. I certainly didn't get it from you. I didn't get it from anyone else in your house, none of your servants. There was no attention given to those things that rightfully due a guest in our house already convicting words. But he says, I saw it. So here's a a main point of this parable. Some people, their level of thanks and gratitude and forgiveness is little in their walk with God. Others are madly in love, and they're grateful. They're thankful for God's grace for their transformed life, they are so thankful that they they can't do enough to show their appreciation. There are times when they get so emotional that the tears just begin to flow. And and there's something inside of you when you feel when you begin to feel that gratitude and thankfulness and understand what you've been delivered from and where you could have been and what God. You into. There's just sometimes you you just you're trying to figure out, God, what can I do? And 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 as much as you open your mouth and you praise and you're thankful and you pray and you walk around crying, it's like you want to do more. And and in this woman, like the other case, they took what was physical because that which cost them something. And they were willing to give it as a, as a sign of their appreciation. Someone who has been forgiven much, loves much. Now here's the sad thing, and, I, and let me speak to second generation and third generation Christians that are here. And I don't say this in a derogatory way or any way, but it's something that you have to deal with. It is harder for second-generation and third-generation Christians to have a close, intimate relationship than it is for first-generation Christians. You understand what I'm saying there? It's because we have, and I, I experience that, I know, it's a battle. As we dealt with, you grow up in the church and it seems to become, you're so accustomed to things. And yes, there's a salvation experience. There's a relationship to come into it. But there's a, there's a battle to fight to really have that intimate relationship. How many understand what I'm saying there? Whereas when you come in from the street where you just, man, just been beat up by the street and you've been living this sword life and and, and you're saved, it's like, wow, I don't want to go back there. I'm thankful. God, I love you. And it just seems a little easier for those people to grab a hold. So I just don't say that, but I say to second and third generation Christians that you have to work at it a little bit. You have to ask God to bring a brokenness to your heart that you realize that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you was the same as it was for everyone else. And that your gratefulness should be as strong as everybody else's gratefulness. And you have to fight the temptation of being subdued from showing your gratitude and your thankfulness to God. I think we have a problem in America today. We have a problem in generations that the further they're removed from the real battles that bring the freedoms, the more they take for granted the freedoms that we have. But the closer you are to fighting those battles like they had a fight back in the 1700s for our freedoms, the more you appreciate your freedom. And I think maybe that's where we're being led astray that we take for granted that we live in a free country so we can do anything that we want without realizing someone had to pay a price. Someone had to pay a price. Someone had to pay a price. We ought to be grateful for them, for every vet, for everyone serving today we need to be thankful today and not take for granted so someone who has been forgiven much loves much and someone who's forgiven little loves little now you could interpret this and get a wrong impression here you you could get the wrong idea do you mean that jesus or that god forgives some more than he forgives others no, it has nothing to do. Jesus forgives all people or all sinners. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's just that it's an attitude that Jesus is dealing with. And the attitude is there are some that are more thankful for their salvation than others, there are some that are more grateful for their salvation than others. And each and every one of us in here who have been saved by the grace of God and by faith ought to be as thankful as we can be and not ashamed to show it, to say it, to bask in it in every opportunity that we have. In verse 47, as Jesus said to her, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. The verb there, have been forgiven. That's where I get the idea. This wasn't the first encounter. She, her sins were forgiven before. She had an encounter. She was touched by God. She believed in Jesus. And when she walked in that room, she believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Now I'll use the term saved because, you know, people who believed in God prior to the, to the death and burial and resurrection, they were counted saved, righteous people. But it wasn't until Jesus did His sacrifice and rose from the grave, and then by faith they accepted He truly was the Messiah, that it was complete, but they were people who committed. And there was a bunch of them before Jesus went to the cross. How many understood what I just said there? It can happen. So this woman had been saved. You can't explain her behavior any other way than that she had a transformed life. She wouldn't have done that unless there was something happening inside of her. You know, I pray, God, I want that something happening inside of me every day. Every day, Lord. I want to be stirred. I want to be thinking about the sacrifice. I want to be thinking about your grace. I want to be thinking about your love. I want to be thanking you for it, oh God. I don't want a day to go by, Lord. I don't want to have an attitude that I've arrived or I've done something for you or anything like that. Lord, I want to keep a humble attitude before you. Lord, it's by faith and grace that I am saved, and I'm just glad I'm here, God. And when we get to heaven, I'm just going to say, I'm just glad I'm here, God. (laughs) I'm just glad I'm here because I know if it weren't for the grace and the love and the mercy of God, I wouldn't be there. It was all God and nothing of me." The Pharisee is seeing what a real transformed life looks like. That's what he sees. That's the witness. That's the testimony. Jesus is using this woman who's been touched, showing, you see this woman? That's what he said. He said to her, do you see this woman? You didn't do this, this, and this, but she did all of those things. This is a transformed life, Pharisee. This is what it's like. Verse 50, he says to her, your faith has saved you. Your faith produced love. Love didn't save her. It wasn't what she did saved her. It was her faith that produced love, which produced fruit, which produced action to move on the faith that you have. One of the marks of a saved life is to be filled with joy, gratitude, and love. An ungrateful, loveless Christian undercuts the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, please? We hope that this message has spoken something personal to you. If you would like more information about our church family or service times, please call us at 303-424-2121 or visit us at our website, www.fbci.org. Faith Bible Chapel currently meets in our Family Worship Center, located on the corner of 62nd Avenue and Ward Road.